And now, it's time for that great new game show. It's the PowerShell Podcast. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. The PowerShell Podcast. Something new, something revolutionary. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey everybody, welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm Jordan with Ultra Mega Superstar Andrew. The Andrew. The Jordan. The duo. The duo. All right. We're off to a great start. We're really, really going through with this one. We are. This is the PowerShell Podcast. That's what people come to expect, man. And you know what? You know who keeps... There's us. We're here every single week. You know who else is here every single week? psweekly.doust.dev. That's where you can keep track of a whole bunch of curated blogs, videos, all kinds of stuff about what's happening in the PowerShell world, cool new projects. Um, definitely recommend checking that one out. And that's our shout out for the day. You check out the PS Weekly? I, I do, yeah. We'll put the link to some PowerShell podcast that I'm a fan of. So I know, oh. I know, I know he's dialed in. Yeah. And the PSConf EU 2023 videos are available now. And there are some good ones there. I've heard some great things about Bruce Payette's sessions, which I'm definitely going to be checking out because he typically blows my mind. Um, he's definitely more advanced than I am and has a better understanding of pretty much everything. Well, I know he's here to listen to us. Let's just bring in our guest, which, I mean, his name is going to be in the title, so it's not like this is going to surprise everyone. But today we have Glenn Sardi. Hey. Sorry, good day. Probably better. <laughs> so go, go, going with uh, region appropriate. So, so you are senior software engineer and expert speaker at All Things Summit. Oh, uh, definitely the first, definitely the former. I don't know about the latter. Yeah, I think uh, just to clarify, you're in Australia. You're from Australia. That's the uh, good day part, yes. right? I am from the West Coast, which is the best coast. Oh, yes, I've heard that. But prior to that, you were living in the United States for a little bit. I think when we met, were you living yes. in the United States? Yep, I lived in Portland, Oregon for two years. Nice. Um, and I believe at that time, were you working at Puppet? Yeah. Um, so funny story, I was actually working for Puppet back then, but that was the beginning of my software development career. So at Funny, so it's a great story. Um, started at the pub because that's where all stories start. On a Easter Easter Friday, I see this thing on Twitter from a uh, Rob Reynolds, who you may have heard of. He goes, do you want to come and work with me at Puppet? I went, I'm at the pub. Yeah, I'll give that a crack. I reckon I could have a go. Put my resume in. Um, three days later, I get a call from the uh, manager saying, hey, Glenn, we would really like to talk to you. And that's when it hit me. It's like, oh. I might actually have to move to America. This isn't just a joke anymore. Uh, nine months later, packed up the family, so my, my wife, my two kids, uh, moved to Portland, Oregon, never actually been to Portland before. And my brother actually lives in Seattle, so it wasn't completely strange. And started my life as a software developer puppet for two years, traveling across halfway across the world because of Rob Reynolds, so I blame, blame him. Wow. That's... Uh... That's quite the adventure. It's a yeah. heck of a pub conversation. Yeah. So the, yeah, the moral of the story is don't make life decisions in the pub. That's what I've been doing wrong. Yeah. 
and you take the pub with you, you kind of make the decisions all over the place. That's uh, kind of my story, but that's a, uh, wow. That is, you know, we talk about, Oh, our career is a journey and that kind of thing, but my goodness, that really is the journey. You brought the whole fam. Yeah. That's a, uh, it, it was a big leap. How was it? Was it immersive whenever you got to the new role? Cause you're starting a, a new career, I guess, in software. Yeah. Um, it, the short version was it was absolutely full on. Um, so trying to get, you know, the kids trying to find a new school, wife trying to get adjusted. Um, I'd never programmed Ruby before then either. So uh, turning into a software developer for a complete language I didn't know. Uh, fortunately, I had a lot of really good people to lean on. Uh, so Ethan Brown was my buddy. He, he's awesome. Um, he actually, we actually, he's actually talk, spoke to Joey when the PowerShell PM so you may have seen the Ethan Brown and Joey show for a little mm. bit, but yeah, really, yeah, it really highlighted the importance of having a really good mentor to both, you know, get you into this like the societal norms of a new company, but also he taught me a lot about um, how to use Git properly, how to do testing to some degree, how to do proper software development. Nice. So, and where did PowerShell fit into all that? Right. So before I moved across, I was actually using a significant amount of PowerShell to manage my virtual desktop infrastructure. Uh, so this is the old VMware VDI, which quite frankly had absolutely terrible automation interfaces. I ended up writing thousands of lines of PowerShell to manipulate the database behind VMware VDI. Uh, so I was using that day in, day out, custom written modules, which I eventually was using TeamCity to publish it and do that kind of stuff internally. But that was, that was an adventure just to get used to PowerShell. Uh, I mean, I honestly didn't have a really high opinion of PowerShell at the beginning. So I came in like PowerShell two days. Back then I knew VB scripts inside and out. I could do everything that I wanted to do. And someone came along and said, you should try this PowerShell thing, Glenn. I looked at it and I tried to do a login script with it. And the first thing it did was call back to VB script. It's like, why on earth am I going to use this thing that calls back to the very thing I knew how to program anyway? So I didn't actually use PowerShell for years until I really got used to doing the automation for maybe PowerShell 5 at that point. Nice. That's about my time as well. And I think, go ahead, Jordan. I always think it's interesting with the uh, intro into PowerShell. So anyone that has experience with another language, the learning curve for how different it is seems to be steep where it was the first thing I picked up and tried. So I just thought how all languages did it, like verb dot, verb dash noun. And then mm -hmm. I get there and realize that's uncommon, but I don't think I can move away from it now. No, I did a talk about doing verb noun <laughs> and how it really is an outlier. What do you think about it overall? You like it? You dislike it? I love verb noun. It's so much easier to comprehend. But it does make it difficult to write decent CLIs that use those semantics properly because English is a terrible language. It's so many exceptions. And trying to write something that conveys the meaning for everyone that you've never met is really difficult. You know, the naming things is hard. But I, I still much prefer it. Yeah. And was that uh, VBScript, was that your first kind of scripting programming type language? 
Yeah, that would be my first serious one, which sounds really silly, uh, BB Script being serious. Uh, two reasons. One, it's used inside MSI exec. That was what your automation scripting language was. That's all you had to play with. And the other one is that was what I wrote uh, login scripts in. And, you know, if you want to go back to the DevOps kind of principles, my login scripts were run by every user every day, millions of times a year. That software needed to be rock solid. So you needed to know how to write good code, even in BB script back then. That's no source control back then, though, quite as much as maybe you're using these days. No Git. Let's go with that. Yeah. I had source control using scare quotes. So. <laughs> dot old, dot old yeah. two. <laughs> underscore one, underscore two. Yep. Yep. I love that. So you and I met, I believe, in 2018. That was my first PowerShell Summit. And I believe mm -hmm. you might have gone to one a year before that. Maybe it was yes. yours. 2017. I I can't remember if it was 2016. I went just as a uh, just as a guest, or not. I can't remember, but I definitely spoke in 2017. Do you know what your topic was? I think that was my infamous Beyond Pesto 101. Nice, infamous indeed. Mm. So you kind of, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but buttered your bread with Pester for a while. Kind of that was your specialty. Um. Yes and no. Um, technically, it was testing, not so much pester. So I took a lot of what I learned in Puppet in Rubyland, which is RSpec, which is their testing language, and took those principles and applied them to how you would do that in PowerShell. Um, I, th I know you had Jakob on just recently. I think he didn't mention it, but... The original author, which I can't remember his name, I'm sorry, um, actually came from Ruby RSpec background, mm. which is why Pesta looks quite similar to RSpec. It describes and context and its and shoulds. Mm. Nice. I, I enjoy that when anyone from any other language kind of learns some principles, learns some things, and then takes it to PowerShell. And I think that even PowerShell itself does that with a lot of its decisions. It kind of borrows from other languages and it kind of, to me, highlights the importance of having different perspectives because it really can shortcut you quite a bit when you see the approach that someone else takes and why they took that approach and some of the struggles. And then maybe you can kind of use that as a starting point. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I think Jeffrey Snowbird mentioned VAX and VMS systems back in the Monad uh, manifesto that he did. Mm. So yeah, everything old, everything new is old. So. Yep. Those patterns keep repeating. Mm. So PowerShell, testing, you were all up in it, loving that Ruby, living that PowerShell life. <laughs> and you kind of started talking. Was PowerShell Summit your first time speaking, or how did you get into the point where now you're speaking all over the place? Sure. So that really started before I moved to America. Um, I was a senior, soft, senior desktop SOE engineer, so a standard operating environment. So I was working for a bank. It's, we'll get to the why that's important in a bit later. Working for a bank, and I was learning about DevOps. And then, you know, how do you actually do DevOps in a highly regulated industry like a bank? I saw that they do other stuff with servers, and I went, hang on a second, I'll be doing this same principles with desktop. 
So what I decided to do is I said, you know what? I, I created a tool called DevOps, DevOps Desktops and Odd Socks, um, which is basically how we were doing DevOps principles in the desktop support land. This now it's not just all about servers and web applications. You as a desktop engineer can do the exactly same principles and you may have been doing them already. And that was things like automation, um, even doing testing, some how to do culture, how to learn from your mistakes, how to apply those things, and how to honestly how to be a lazy engineer and get more done. Because that's really what ultimately you want to do is do nothing. That's how I started doing my talks. Um, I, so I did it at a local meetup. I did it within the bank, uh, just internally with all the developers there. I did things like, um, here's a deep dive into how VMware co-schedules all your virtual machines onto a single CPU and why when you ask for this thing, it's bad. To give, them, to give the developers more context on what they're actually asking for. Um, so then I moved to America. I went, I'm only here for two years because that's how the visa is. I better use this time wisely. They had uh, Toastmasters uh, provided a puppet, so I did some Toastmasters, learned a little bit how to speak properly, you know, because I got a really good accent. And then I just started finding opportunities to talk. And it just so happened that PowerShell needed someone to talk about testing. And I learned some stuff about testing, so let's tell the people. And so it begins my story. So can I say with Toastmasters, I thought, when I first started going, I discovered something, but more and more, like we have guests that have mentioned that Toastmasters were a big uh, step up in them getting comfortable and ready to speak. So it's, I don't know if, if you have interest in, in talking, I would say Toastmasters is worth checking out just because if nothing else, it'll get you used to speaking in front of a group and being able to adapt to distractions while you're speaking. Yep. Hecklers. <laughs> Have have you been heckled? That would be fascinating. <laughs> I have sure. not yet. Well, that is quite quite the journey. I think most people, at least a lot of people that I've spoken to, that kind of initially speaking and kind of learning in the open, so to speak, and being comfortable with all that uh, is kind of a transformative period for them. Um, but it sounds like that happened before you really got into next-level PowerShell testing and all that fancy stuff. Yeah, it's and that's why it was strange doing it for a bank. They were big on pushing DevOps principles. Um, the person that actually ran the DevOps meetup was the head of change management at a bank. Wow. Yeah. And his second in charge was one of his other people. They did a talk at uh, what a change management conference in Australia about how DevOps and oh, I've forgotten the name of the principles now come back to me. Yeah, how DevOps can actually be applied in regulated industries and how your preconceptions about how you do government regulated stuff really, really shouldn't be that way. There are, there are ways of being more agile and doing better things faster in a safer way. Hmm. And they were the ones that pushed me to do things. Now we're talking DevOps principles. Now you don't have to list them all, but whenever you say that, what kind of comes to your mind? Sure. I'm a, the, I'm a student of the original, so that'll be the CAMS, the Culture Automation Measurement and Sharing. Uh, so that was coined by Damon Edwards, Damon Edwards, and I've forgotten the other guy's name. You're putting me on the spot here. 
Yeah, so the, the four principles there, culture, automation, measurement, and sharing, I like those because two of them are about technology and two of them are about people. And it's very important that you cannot do one without the other. Yep. And it's it's so interesting and cool, I think, to find that so many people find the importance of communication and people stuff. Like it is such a truth, but I think more and more people, it's like prevalent everywhere. I think so many people are um, hearing words like user experience, customer experience, developer experience, you know, really putting thought into how the human experiences things and, you know, the importance of communicating in a way that's productive. Mm, yeah. Um, especially, especially me coming from, even though we're both English speaking people, we have very different ways of communicating. So how do you even do that even within a team? Oh yeah. Especially at even bigger companies where you're in, you know, most countries, there's going to be a lot of cultural differences between places and figuring out how to communicate and how to navigate some of those differences is definitely important. Um, now, I kind of like talking about culture. So can we harp on the culture bit a little bit? Yeah, sure. Because uh, to me, that is like really going to either set you up for success or really be something challenging that you have to navigate through at a company. Um, what are some ways that you've seen culture be improved at a place? Ooh. Okay. This is going to be an interesting conversation. So my personal belief is that culture is a lagging indicator. You can't actually change culture. What you can do is affect the day-to-day -day interactions between people because that's what creates your culture. So as trite as it sounds, you know, be the change you want to see, um, leading by example, particularly as I'm now in a senior engineer, I was a senior SOE engineer, actually taking the time to mentor the people on your team and do it in a kind way that actually brings them success, not so much yourself. So it's probably the two things is being selfless and trying to make the team work better, not so much yourself. I like that. It kind of, to me, kind of hits on the automation bit, right? Because you can't automate every problem. Sometimes you need to empower other people to be able to help with those problems in the kind of less automatable bits. Um, so you use the term selfless, which in some aspects it is, but also I think if you have the perspective that this is how you influence culture, well, it's kind of like selfish in some ways because you're helping make the culture that you have to work in better and the team that you work in better and the people around you a little bit smarter at certain things that you're good at and you create relationships where now there is more back and forth communication possible and people on your team can share things with you that they may have otherwise not shared with if you didn't create that safe environment, um, which yeah. is what I love this the most about the DevOpsy kind of thing. It's like it, to my mind, works on so many different angles. Um, like it, it benefits the business, it benefits the individuals. It's just, it's nice. Yeah, I mean, I can give you a concrete example of that. Um, so again, I was back in my desktop days, I was the person that enforced the rules about what you could and couldn't do on your desktop and developers hated me. Uh, but sometimes their virtual desktops wouldn't work. So instead of just, you know, sitting in my little ivory tower, just taking tickets, um, we all worked in the same building. So I went and physically sat next to them uh, for days on end. And just, I worked there. And if they had a problem, they can come and speak to me. They didn't come and speak to me because they didn't really have problems. And then they realized didn't really have an issue and they didn't bother me again. Let's go full circle. Nice. Fif 15 years later, I went to a meetup 
just in Perth recently, it was the developers that came up and said hello to me. The, the people that were supposedly, you know, my enemies and causing me issues at work, they were the ones that actually came and remembered me and said hello because I took the time to sit with them to listen to their problems. So it is a bit of a long game, but it's worth it. And it's worth it. So I've been in places where infrastructure and development have been combative and ones where they're cohesive. And it is a very, very... They, I don't understand where the uh, the rivalry comes from because it's so different. It's, it, I mean, it should be very, I don't know, symbiotic. But yes, I don't, I don't know. So I guess how how does it get down start down the path of where it becomes as combative as it happens so often? Because it's it's frequent enough that it doesn't feel like it's a random thing. Like there's there's got to be something there. Yeah. All right, so I, I'm not going to turn to my consultant head on and say how to change your culture. It's you're looking at the real reasons why there's a divide in the first place. Uh, why why do they not trust each other? Have you heard about the five dysfunctions of a team? By where's the book? I I'm sure I've got all of them. That is an awesome book uh, where it describes the pyramid of how your teams fail. And at the very bottom is absence of trust. And that is the, the primary reason why they're not talking to each other, because they don't trust each other to actually do the right thing. How do you change that really depends on the people that you're talking to. But again, you know, be the change you want to be. Um, advocate for them. Let's say you're in, a, in a, you know, a change advisory board meeting and they're trying to do something and there's something going on. Advocate for their change. Show them trust. Now, if it doesn't get shown back, that's a whole different story. But that is where you need to start to build that trust. And you may not ever fix it. That's the sad thing. It just may be too ingrained and it may be enforced or reinforced at the, the higher levels. You just don't know. Yeah. One little trap I see people fall into is they can assume bad intention when it's not always bad intention, right? If you have, and my, a sign of a healthy culture to me is like one where people assume good intention and then are able to have a nice conversation about it um, and empathetically listen and kind of figure things out without just like being siloed off, just like, oh, they're just stupid and just keep going yeah. about your day while things are broken. Was it don't ascribe malice to that could just be ignorance? Something like that? that yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, just, to, I mean, I'm big on culture. I made the mistake of assuming malintent last week. Um, So it's a constant lifelong thing to try and get over this. And text-based mediums are terrible for it. Back when I was in infrastructure, every time I had to go over to where the developers were, I was usually wearing my shirt that says sysadmins because developers need heroes too. Maybe (laughs) maybe I was starting off at a combative place of my own making. Yes, that won't help. (laughs) Beer and donuts may help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's some good insight right there. Because I think we all exist in work culture, right? We all feel the pressures of it in in good ways sometimes, depending on the company, and in really tough ways sometimes. And I think that there's quite a few people out there where they may be the only one concerned or thinking about things in this way. I think from what I've seen, at least, you know, big companies where there's like, you know, a high standard for who they hire and they've established some decent stuff can sometimes be pretty good about it. I think there's a lot of places that are maybe more mid small sized where it's just 
there's one person trying to change things and it's kind of an uphill battle. Maybe they don't have the senior title. Maybe they're just kind of seeing all these things. They're like, wow, this really resonates with me. And then they go to work and no one else is interested in it. Yeah. Um, the sad I, thing is that they'll leave eventually. Yeah. Oh, hopefully for them they do. Cause it's such yeah. a challenge to change the culture from the bottom. It's not impossible. Like what you say, be the change yeah. and all that. But there are certain situations where if things are super toxic or things are super dysfunctional, you know, you may want to consider being with yep. some other people who understand DevOps principles and who understand culture. Yep. Not to be half glass empty, but uh, we had a major outage at the bank. Uh, we lost our primary and secondary data center over the December holidays. Gone. That was a, you know, a, a moment for development and infrastructure people. We all got together trying to get our bank up and running at the worst possible time. So we bonded over that. So yeah, don't let was it nothing like a crisis to bring yeah. people together. Don't let a good crisis go to waste. So what if I'm understanding what Glenn is telling all of our listeners is if you're having a hard time communicating with developers, just take stuff down. I didn't say that, <laughs> <laughs> but you will get their attention, whether it's good or bad. Well, yeah, you don't want to put it do it in a way that they can figure out that it was you that did it. <laughs> well, if you build your infrastructure proper, then it wouldn't go down, so it's fine. As I moved to being more of a senior engineer, yeah. um, I found that culture and communication are a bigger part of my job and something that I wish I knew more about. Yeah, I, I can feel that. I think that we often, we try at least with the podcast to highlight the importance of working on our communication skills. You know, those are skills that we can improve. And I think that everyone benefits in so many ways when you can work on how we communicate, how we understand ourselves, you know. If you have someone on your team who's kind of like emotionally intelligent in that way, I found that it can really make things easier because um, yeah. it's often lacking. See, Andrew's so emotionally intelligent. That was a high praise for him while he's making no. a dig at me. <laughs> no, it is not. That is not. <laughs> it would not be very intelligent to dump on someone you work with. I'm in your camp, Jordan. So I know that I don't know. Yeah. I don't think I'm great at it. I, I think I've definitely put in some work, but I know that I've been like having that person on the team who asks those questions that kind of need to be asked. Mm. And maybe everyone is like, Oh, am I, what is going on here? But then there's someone out there who kind of sets the standard of like, Hey, what's going on here? Does this make sense? Is anyone else thinking this? And then you do that enough times. Maybe you kind of help change the culture. So other people feel comfortable asking questions. Yeah. I, I could geek out about that stuff all day. Um, I, I can do one more point if you want. Yeah, please do. So in full circle, my most favorite talk that I ever did was uh, sharing what's in it for me, which talks about the power of sharing your information with a, a greater group of people. Why is it good for me to give you my information? And I mean, I talk about emotional autobiographical storytelling. I talk about the research that Google did about psychological safety within teams what it means to be a senior and giving your juniors more space to talk and a safe place to talk, that's also important, and how sharing your information is important for you and your team and the greater IT industry as a whole. Now, here's a question, because my mind kind of goes to a few things, but one kind of thing that's been affecting me a little bit is that, you know, taking, so we have a lot <laughs> of companies these days that maybe they use Slack, maybe they use Teams, whatever, they're kind of, their primary day-to-day -day communication might be a text-based thing, right? Like Teams mm -hmm. or Slack. 
What do you think about people who really prefer just doing everything quietly in DMs versus people who use the channel and allow visibility to be seen into their conversations? Obviously not everything, right? There are some things that should be kind of handled in a DM, but what do you think of that? Ooh. So I'm, I'm going to be biased, obviously, because I prefer to do all of my talk in public channel unless I need to do it in private. That has been born out of me working at Puppet, which is all open source. So you could see every single code mistake I ever made in the last X number of years. But the reason I do that is because it's not hidden. You can see me. You can see what it's, what's going on. Um, dirty little secret, I also do that so I don't get forgotten. Um, being in Australia, working for a US company, it's very easy to not be seen. Good way to combat that is to put text out there. You know, use GIFs or GIFs. Make things fun. I mean, hopefully your work is not terrible, but, you know, at least have try and have some fun at work. It's no different to having jokes at the water cooler, just putting cat GIFs into the believe your text. Yeah. To me, it also comes down to don't repeat yourself. Like I would love to have a message that I post about some kind of thing I observe or did whatever lead to another discussion, or at the very least someone reads it or they can search some new person we hire, whatever. Like it's one less thing that maybe I have to say. I disagree with that. Um, mm. Slack is a terrible place to search. Slack is, well, I'm picking on Slack, sorry. Immediate messaging systems are bad for that. They're usually hard to search for. Um, Sometimes your messages only have a 60-day retention, so your conversation goes into the ether after 60 days. You need to find better ways to put your decisions and your architecture and your, what you want to be concrete out of that. Um, yeah. So one thing, one thing that we do is we, I personally try to record all of my Zoom calls and have them all recorded because I get automatic transcripts for free. I can then email them around. Those don't disappear. We email. I love those, that word. <laughs> it has no, its uses. I agree with you. Like important things like that should definitely like important decisions, things like that. But I was thinking more day to day, like whatever I saw this thing and kind of worked on it. Yeah. It, you have to learn to know when to change your communication medium, depending on what you're talking about. Yeah. But I, I tend to agree with the whole searching thing. It gets real clogged real quick. Yeah. Um, and Slack and Teams. Yeah. It's no different to talking to a crowd of people. Does that On the topic, question? I think it does. I think it does. But, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of don't repeat yourself. And in collaboration. Now, on the topic of collaboration, you mentioned mentorship and the importance of mentorship for you. Yes. Can you go into a little bit more about that? Because it sounds like you were on the receiving end of it, and it sounds like maybe these days, and maybe even back in 2017, 2018, you were on the giving end of some mentorship. But how do you view your responsibility as it pertains to mentorship? Um, as a mentor and a mentee? I'm thinking more mentor, but yeah, as a mentee as yeah. well. You know, Let's hear both sides of the coin. Sure. So full disclosure, I am both a mentor and a mentee. Um, I have people within the company that I mentor. HashiCorp has an internal mentorship program. Um, I have people outside of that that I talk to. The important thing, actually I talk about in my sharing talk actually, is how being a mentor can actually broaden your mind. 
because you get to speak with someone that has a different point of view. Uh, typically, mentees are generally younger than you. They've got less experience. It's a very broad brush, but you get the idea. <clears throat> they just think of stuff that I never thought of, and we get to explore that together. They get to have some of the benefits of not repeating my mistakes. I get to see them grow. I have, um, again, back in the bank, I had grads. I had graduates. So it's similar to your interns over in America. I've seen them flourish. I've seen them come in just as fresh out of university. I now see them married having kids, and they've been doing international speaking. And that's fantastic. I, I want to see them succeed. So that's kind of what drives for me is I want them to succeed. I want them not to fail like I did. I want them to avoid the potholes. They need to know what they're there, avoid them, and accelerate the growth of their career. And as a mentee, that's what I want from my mentor. Um, I, I went through a fairly difficult patch in 2019. Um, I think I was briefly talking about it when I was shifting, when I was being in software development for so long. I thought my infrastructure skills were you know, atrophying, but I had my foot in camp so long I was neither developer nor infrastructure admin. So what is Glenn? What, what does Glenn do? And I had to speak. I spoke with two mentors actually then, walking through what do I want? What do I actually want to achieve? What, what do I find joy in? And then trying to pursue that. The thing I like about being a mentor is that like there's a certain amount of safety, right? When you have a community of people you've kind of helped out or whatever, just a handful of people that you've helped get to a, a space, I feel like worst case scenario, you know, if things kind of go awry in life, you have a pretty good, I don't know if it's a safety net's the right word, but like you have a network of people who know you, who you know them. Like it's just, there's a certain amount of safety in that. Even if it's just, hey, I have people who I have a relationship with and they will empathize with me whenever I'm going through a hard time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I don't deal with PowerShell day-to-day. -day. I still use day-to-day, -day, but I don't use it anywhere near as much. But I still keep in contact with all my PowerShell peeps every day because they're going through similar things what, I'm, what I go through, but just has, doesn't happen to be PowerShell related. Yep. Same uh, patterns, just a different medium. Yep. It's like people are universal. <laughs> right? I know. So how does someone find a mentor if they've never had one before? How should they go about that? Oh, um, if your company offers a mentorship program, jump at it. That, that's the first thing. Um, actually, it depends what you want to be mentored in. I'm assuming we're talking technical work stuff at the moment. There are other ways of doing mentorship. Um, you, if you have a meetup group that you go to or a bunch of IT people that you know, ask them if they know anybody. Um, and then you can kind of do what I did and I asked someone that I really looked up to and I sent them a DM saying, hey, would you be my mentor? And they said yes. They might say no, but I'm sure they'll be very gracious when they say no. Yeah. And I think if you're ready for mentorship, like you're ready to take advantage of it, you're hungry, I think that's a good approach. Um, and especially if you can let the authenticity kind of show. Typically people who are at a certain place, maybe not super famous people, right? They'll get too many messages. But like when people have invested a lot of time and certain skills to get to where they are, I found that they almost enjoy talking about it because probably in their life with their partners or whatever families they don't get to talk about it right their accomplishments or whatever they've learned isn't 
received in the same light. So having someone who appreciates what they've done and who will listen and really absorb what they're saying, I think usually uh, is the basis of a good situation. I will say that something that helped me is I knew what I wanted to be mentored on. I, I had an objective that I wanted. Because um, if you just ask someone, hey, can you tell me stuff? It's a very vague conversation. But if you say, I'm having this problem at work. I need to figure out where my career is going. I need this, this, and this, and this. Can you help me achieve that? So are, are mentorship something that's always formal? Or because I'm never going to be one to go out and ask or talk to people, but there are people in my life that have been massive positive forces on helping me hit the next level. I consider them mentors, but I never really, I guess, formalized it with them. I guess, is that a, is that a common thing or is it something you should look to, to, to sure. reach out and say, do you want to be? Short version. No, they don't have to be formal. Uh, there's a talk by Chris Howard, uh, which is the campfire principal. And she goes through and explains there are different types of mentors at different types of different parts of your career. You could have someone that's tr that was like a workmate is someone that's actually at the same level in your team. They could be one type of mentor. You could then be looking to get to a management position. So you might want to have a management mentor. You might want to get into an entirely different career path. So you have to have a different type of mentor. So it's like a coach or a technical mentor, even a therapist, you could argue as a mentor in some degrees. So no, it doesn't have to be formal. It could be just two people in the pub you have beers and talk about stuff. That's how you that, end up moving across the world. Yeah. Great things can happen from that. <laughs> I, I definitely have some mentors and mentees where it's not official. It feels like whenever you're you're mentioning that, Jordan, I'm imagining like being in the school with like a piece of paper that says, Will you be my mentor? Yes, <laughs> no. They <laughs> can <Like in> circle. <laughs> That's kind of what my DM was to my mentor. So yeah. Nice. Well, you know what? If you want, have some questions, you want a little bit of mentorship from Jordan and I, you have some questions, whatever, hit us up, powershellpdq.com. Jordan and I will get you those answers. Because I know that there are some places where it can be kind of hard to know where to go, you know, but getting involved in communities is a good starting point to getting things started. All right. Let's we're we're talking a little bit culture, a little mm -hmm. bit career. I want to go more into career because your career has been pretty awesome. Um, I think most people working on at tech companies with tech that people use is kind of a cool situation, right? Um, a lot of people in IT are using the products that you've worked on. So mm -hmm. how do you start entering into the world of working for those companies that we know the names of? How does that happen? Is it by mistake? Is it deliberate? Once you're in, are you in? Is there a secret club? Do you have to get a tattoo? What's going on? I don't know. And that's a terrible answer. <laughs> so I'll start with, I mean, I changed my careers at 40, become a software developer by moving halfway across the world with my family. That is not a story that's going to be atypical for everyone. And I would not recommend that for everyone. However, there was a lot of things that I was doing prior that got me there first. Um, I, was, I, was, I was a senior, so I, I was mentoring people. I was actively searching out, trying to become a better team member as opposed to a, just a good engineer. Um, and I think that's really served me well, is to have a better concept of the team wins as opposed to let's just get a better title. 
Some tech companies like that attitude. Some don't care for it. I've only worked for the ones that care for it. Do you think that your public speaking and just general public presence played a role in landing these roles? Ooh. Um, I said, I'm not sure if it helped, but it certainly didn't harm it. The ability to think on the fly, to not, to not be super nervous when speaking to new people, um, something that I'm not sure if, Andrew, you've experienced it when you're doing speaking, someone's asked you a question, you go, I don't know. And being okay with saying that, that is a very difficult te- a skill to acquire. But it's very valuable because you get yes. to be yourself. You get to show other people, especially if you get to, like you said, you're a senior now. When you get to the point where you have some kind of success and some kind of whatever at your company, if you can be the one leading the, hey, it's okay to not know. It's okay to ask questions. You don't have to appear yeah. like an expert in every aspect, which I've had roles where I was like um, the more senior technical person, but I was also kind of married to the idea that I had to be the best, you know, which is yeah. a dangerous, toxic place to be. And you want to get out of that. Yeah, it's not good for your mindset where you either have to constantly be right or at least be perceived to be right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Being honest, being open, learning, right? You mentioned yeah. earlier that talking to a mentee is super valuable because you kind of get to see things from their eyes. They ask great questions. And that's yeah. the truth that I think a lot of us see, which is diverse perspective, multiple perspectives is so much better. Every single person has blind spots and just can't be perfect. So someone who is aware of that should be open to different ideas and should be open to not being an expert on everything. And having the safe space to talk about it. Yes, and helping create that safe space and culture. But yeah, I don't have, unfortunately, much career guidance to give because my career was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But I, I think... Uh... There is the, the most, I guess, the default career path, but I think uncommon roads, route, roads is becoming more and more prevalent as, you know, with, with DevOps, it's kind of started to blend infrastructure and development a little bit. I mean, there's still two distinct roles, but DevOps kind of gives a crossover between them. So I think uh, winding paths is becoming a bit more common. Yeah, you actually make a good point about that because, I mean, learning a language, learning a computer language, like PowerShell, for example, really good way to upskill what you do. Um, I regularly program in Ruby, TypeScript, Golang, PowerShell, and YAML, technically. I have to learn all those. And some of those I learned before I became a software engineer. Anything to get a leg up is always a, a positive. Well, it, it, firstly, it shows you're willing to learn. Um, it's a good talking point if you want to talk to developers and, and people outside of just your infrastructure admin. Why not speaking to your auditors, and particularly auditors, that's an entirely different language, your development teams, your change management teams, your release process management teams, even the teams that are trying to change culture within your company. It's important to be able to understand what you do in your job. How does that affect everything else that you do? I think Jez Humble said, you know, if you don't know how the company makes money, what are you doing at the company? How do you know what you do is valuable? Yeah, the term value stream kind of comes to mind. Yeah. And yeah. How do you generate value for the company? Yep. And to me, learning PowerShell 
helped me be able to think about the full company. Like, I don't know what it was, but going through and like being able to put together a module, it solves a big problem and the documentation and, you know, the core issue that we're solving here helped me be able to think in a way where I can think about the whole business and what do we actually do and how do I play a role in that? Yeah, I find it. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, has PowerShell and learning it, you know, I know it's your first object-oriented language, I think. I don't know if VBScript is. But has PowerShell impacted the way you think about things? I know DevOps principles has, but like, has learning PowerShell stuff done anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the pipeline, because the pipeline is a big thing. So I did VBScript and I knew some C-sharp at that point. But the pipeline was completely different concept to those particular languages. Um, to be able to abstract and put my objects through a pipeline and manipulate it and do stuff with it was a high-level abstract that I'm used to in C-sharp and VBScript. Um, it also cemented the way some thinking in my brain is like languages have advantages, languages have disadvantages. You should learn to use the right tool for the right job. Again, sometimes PowerShell is not the best tool to use, usually is, but it's not the best tool for everything. So being able to switch between the two was really handy. I think that's blasphemy. I use PowerShell for everything, no matter what. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because I know that you mentioned in your day-to-day, you're not doing as much as uh, PowerShell as maybe you did before. You're kind of using it as your shell of choice, but you're not doing deep things. What's that like moving away from PowerShell a little bit in some regards. I know that we should always choose the right tool for the right job. And it sounds like different languages have some pretty advanced tool sets and things like that that are worth taking advantage of at times. What's your view of that whole situation? Yeah. um, It does force you to context switch a lot. So to jump from language to language can be a really big brain drain. So you have to be careful about that you're not flicking between too many languages at once. but try So if you heard the concept of like a T-shaped employee or a T-shaped person where you're deep on one thing and wide on quite a lot, mm-hmm. there's no way I can be a TypeScript, Golang, Ruby expert on all three. It's just not possible. There's too much to learn. But being able to go, I am deep on Ruby. That's what I do day to day. But that doesn't mean I can't learn things about Golang. I can't take principles that I apply in Ruby. I, I can apply them to Golang. Flip side is some of those things don't work. Like you can't take concepts in Ruby and put them to Golang or PowerShell. It just does not exist. So it does force you to have to think very carefully about what you do in what language and why. But my my favorite one's testing because I know that's basic universal across all the languages. Applying my testing principles that are learned in PowerShell and learned in Ruby, and I can apply them to Golang and apply them to TypeScript. That is what I enjoy. That's what I like about learning some of this stuff because those skills can be transferred across no matter what job I do. Okay. I like that. Here's a question. What is more important? Which part of your skill set do you think brings you the most value? Your technical skill set or what you've learned about communication and culture and helping kind of shape that in whatever way you can? Uh, Communication is important at the beginning. And then your technical is important at the end. At HashiCorp, we have what's called the RFC process, where we have to document uh, up for requests for comments for all the other engineers in the company. And I have to explain what major change I'm going to do and why. 
And an important part of that document is actually the abandoned ideas section at the bottom, which is all the things that I thought of and went, nope. That requires communication skill to write a document that is concise, that someone can read and go, oh, yeah, I know what Glenn's talking about. Yep, he's on the right track. Go for it. Once that gets approved, then I can actually go and implement it. That's when your technical chops are really needed, just in case there's things that don't have you've forgotten about as part of the RFC. However, there is a, a bit of a niggling point there. As part of the RFC process, I'm writing code to see whether I can even do anything as impossible. I'm just playing around with stuff. That is not me being TDD. That's not me writing unit tests. That's just me playing around to see whether something's possible. So you still need some technical chops there, but really it's important to get the communication skills correct at first. You mentioned an RFC. Are you using AI at all to help you generate any of this or rephrase no. things or anything like that? I'm personally not, no. Good Mainly because it, it would have no idea. There is no generative text or no library of text you could use to generate my RFCs. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess you'd have to make a super long prompt to kind of get it to do anything near near yeah. that, and that would just not be worth the time. About an RFC length prompt, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Jordan, you think he's ready? Well, no one's ever truly ready for the common parameters. Good. But, I mean, if anyone... I think I think Glenn's as close to as ready as any guest we've ever had. Oh, I'm just gonna yeah. I'm just gonna dive right into the common parameters. Just you know, this is three questions, each more difficult than the last. <laughs> All right. So the first one: What is one time something went wrong while on the job? Like, for instance, say your bank went down around the holidays. Uh, how yeah. did you handle it, and what did you learn? Cool. Uh, yeah, bank went down over the holidays. Um, the documentation that we used to bring the stuff up was on servers that we couldn't get to. <sighs> so I learned that you should distribute your disaster recovery documentation to servers that won't blow up and are separate from your data center. And you do that through automation. So I had a team city job that copied my docs from one server to another, and I didn't have to worry about it ever again. That is a fantastic takeaway. Uh... Learn from my failure, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I it never even crossed my mind that in an outage at that level you might lose just basic disaster recovery documentation. That's a big one. It was on SharePoint, and SharePoint needs AD, and the AD was dead, and DNS was dead. Yikes! Boy, I've learned something. I'm, apparently, common parameters are difficult for me to comprehend. <laughs> Glenn's just knocking it out of the park. That's just because that's the first one. That one's. That was easy. We're going, we're going to the second common parameter. Sure. Everything that you know now, what's one advice you'd give your younger self when you're first starting out? Uh, share your ideas earlier. Um, don't keep them in your head. Is that, uh, is that more of a, just to have it all out there? Or is it more early interaction for early ideas will help it grow to a better, I guess, um, realized thought? Part of it is um, the group thinking, probably getting a better idea. And the second one is not to be stuck in my own head. So there's a little bit of self-care in that. I tend to overthink things. Me too. <laughs> That's good advice. I just <laughs> read that down for myself. <laughs> All right. I'll be honest. You're impressing me. You're crushing it. But this last one, this is where everyone wants to give up. It's not an option. Okay. Though. What are your three favorite modules in PowerShell? So 
this is a trick question for me because my favorite is actually invoke web request and invoke rest method, but that's part of standard libraries. So I, that's not a module. So I'm going to shill uh, Burnt Toast by Josh because, you know, Southern Hemisphere, yes. Um, one of my own modules, which I haven't maintained for years, which is Ruby installer, because back in the puppet days, installing Ruby onto Windows was absolutely terrible. So I wrote a PowerShell module to install it for me. And the last one should be no surprise, which is Pesta. Good call out. And yeah, you know what? the team do an awesome job. It really is. And we will include a link to some YouTube videos of yours about Pester. I think there's a um, a playlist that we've linked before, but I think we'll uh, make another call out to it in this episode. So see the show notes for Pester goodness. Yep, beyond Pester 101, 102, and surprise, surprise, 103. Like I say, I saw 103. It's uh, you're getting quite quite advanced in your in your Pester lessons. I'm running out of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't count much higher than that. Yeah. How advanced does it get? Like, how much more um, deep can you get into it? Well, the irony is, is I'm not going deep. I'm actually going high level. Uh, I'm. I don't think I can go any higher. <laughs> when I was talking about the two, did, did you know about the two basic questions in PowerShell testing? No. What are they? No. There you go. Common parameters coming back at you. <laughs> the two questions you should ask of your PowerShell code is: Does it do what it's supposed to do? How do you know what it does? What it's supposed to do? And that's what testing solves. It's a, that it's a great back, approach to learn, yeah. And that goes back to the days of Aristotle. So <laughs> now what that guy know? Yeah. Dang. Is this, are they, did Glenn crush this better than anyone before? The Do common problem is that is the that is the uh, most I, I don't want to say succinct because that seems like it's you know the most direct to fantastic takeaway I think we've had. Sorry, Toastmasters for the win. <laughs> Thinking on your feet. We always like to to end with uh, people are surprised to learn that they're actually been interviewed by a known celebrity, and that celebrity <laughs> is Andrew. And what what he's known for is shilling podcasts. Uh, you know, he used to use it for good and evil, but he found that the place where it has the most value is shilling for the PowerShell podcast. So we get a front row seat to watch a master of his craft uh, just spin some magic. Take it away, Andrew. Yeah, I was born for this to shill the PowerShell podcast. So thank you, beloved listeners. Like, comment, subscribe, please. You know, Hit us up on the YouTubes. If you're on uh, audio platforms, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Shout out to our Spotify listeners. It'll be a while until you hear this episode if you're going in order. Um, if you want to email us, you can hit us up, powershell at pdq.com. What about other websites? Well, I'm Andrew Platek on a bunch of websites like Twitter. He's DevOps Jordan. And Glenn, people want to keep up with you. They want to say, what's up, Glenn? We loved your episode. Where can they find you on the internet? I'm um, on the Twitters at... Uh at, at Glenn Sarty, which is pretty obvious. I do have a blog, which is sarty.dev, which I have not updated in a very long time. So you probably see some great outdated information there. But you yeah, hit me up on Twitter. Awesome. I will. All right. Thanks for joining us. Long time listener, first time caller. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. Two kinds of flavor. 
two kinds of crunch. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick.